Speak, Lord, to our hearts. We, your servants, are listening. Speak, Lord, to our hearts. We, your servants, are listening. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter, second Sunday of Advent. We're focusing upon the very peace that comes in the grand story, the grand hope that we have in the Prince of Peace coming to earth to provide salvation for all who would trust in him. Each and every week during this Advent season, we're taking a little bit of time to uh, think about our nativity scenes and to zoom in on those familiar faces, those familiar characters. Last week, we looked at Joseph and a close-up, the adoptive parent, father of Jesus. This week, we're zooming in on the mother of our Savior, Jesus, and we're looking at Mary. Every time I think of Mary, read the story of Mary, there's a part of me that the soundtrack of that Mark Lowry, Mary Did You Know song is always playing. There's something about that song that's probably as close to a modern Christmas classic as any song that we have. Mary Did you know, maybe you're familiar with that song, Carrie Underwood has covered that song. Uh, Some of you maybe are familiar with the Clay Aiken version of that song. CeeLo Green has his cover of it. I was a teenager and my parents were huge country music fans. So Miss 103 was a country music station that was always on in the car, always on in our house. And Kenny Rogers and Winona Judd have a duet Mary, did you know? And I remember as a teenager hearing that, going to church and saying, hey, have y'all heard this Kenny Rogers song? That was the first time I was introduced to the Gaither vocal band and the writer of that, Mary, did you know, Mark Lowry. Now, you're familiar with the song, whatever rendition you're familiar with it in, and, and it poses these really insightful questions about how this young, penniless, peasant, teenage girl would have been able to comprehend what God had called her to do. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would walk on water? Mary, did you know that he would calm the sea? Mary, did you know that he would give sight to the blind? Mary, did you know that he would rule the nations? Mary, did you know that the boy that you deliver will soon deliver you? Mary, did you know? It's a wonderful song. It leads us into the humanity of the story. It jumps off of the page of the biblical account reminding us these are real people with real doubts, real question marks about what is occurring here, but in an effort to to accentuate the ignorance of Mary, what she didn't know, there is a unique temptation that we overemphasize what she didn't know to, to the dismay of what she did know. There's much that Mary did know. That, that is portrayed for us right in your copy of God's Word in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. So this second Sunday of Advent, I want us to be reminded of just what Mary did know about this remarkable, holy, unique call of God upon her life. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 28, 26. In the sixth month, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying 
and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Since I'm a virgin, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, in case you've forgotten, Mary, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was also called barren. Verse 37, for nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her two aspects of this story that I want us to focus our mind, I want us to focus our hearts upon this morning, two unique aspects of this wholly unique, wholly unimaginable earthly person by the name of Mary and what she experienced. I want us to think first this morning of the unlikely candidacy of Mary, the mother of Jesus, I want us to see the unlikely candidacy. There there are two aspects of this. Think about her youthful inexperience. She's probably 12, maybe 13, maybe 14 at the oldest. We can look back first century in that ancient Near Eastern world. Most of the young ladies would be married or betrothed to be married by 12, uh, by 13. Now, it's not helpful for us to think of a 12-year-old daughter that you might have, a 13-year-old daughter that you might have. It's not helpful for us to superimpose our understandings of a 13-year-old in our culture upon Mary and their culture. Don't think Mary putting a retainer in at the end of the night to go to sleep, fretting over who's going to ask her to a middle school dance. That's not what we need to be thinking about, of course, in that first century world. A 12-year-old, a 13-year-old have much more life experience than a 12 or 13-year-old in our culture. Certainly a 12 or 13-year-old in their culture would have, would have a, a greater sense of, of maturity and a greater sense of difficulty probably than, than, than most 12 or 13-year-olds in our culture here. So yes, there's a cultural difference between the youthfulness of Mary then and what we perceive to be now. But even with that difference, don't mistake what is occurring here. In every way, she is way too young, wholly unprepared, and wholly inexperienced for what God is calling her to do. Don't misunderstand. This 12-year-old, this 13-year-old, this 14-year-old is being asked by God to do something that is unimaginable. And she is not prepared for what God is asking her to do. But we shouldn't be surprised. This isn't the first time that God in his word overcomes inexperience. This isn't the first time that God in his word overcomes youthfulness to be able to to spread his name and to spread his glory. There There was a foe by the name of Goliath. No one could take him. The armies of the day could not take him. The Mike Tyson of that day comes into battle, and there is one youthful 
inexperienced shepherd boy by the name of David. He comes out onto the field. Goliath laughs at him in mocking derision. Are, are they going to send just this, this baby toward me? David gets the last laugh as he slings a smooth stone and kills Goliath. Mary's not the first youthful, inexperienced person to be used by God. You remember King Darius in the book of Daniel? He erects this, this altar and he says, everybody in the kingdom must bow down to me and worship me. But yet there are three teenage boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who say, nope, we're not going to do it. Come what may, we're not going to bow down to you. And these teenage boys, they become martyrs of the faith. And King Darius and his servant, they're counting in that fiery furnace. I got one, I've got two, I've got three. And there's a fourth in there. Who is that? And it's there that revival breaks out in that kingdom because of the faithfulness of these three teenage boys. Do not be surprised when God overcomes youthfulness and inexperience to make his name known. You fast forward to the New Testament. Paul is writing to his protege in the ministry by the name of Timothy. Most scholars believe that Timothy would have been 16 years old. So much so that people would have been hesitant of so much responsibility being given by the Apostle Paul to Timothy to be a leader and an elder in the church that he would write in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. Don't think that God only can use the experience. Don't think God that can only use the well-educated. Don't think God can only use those that have so many calendar years that they have turned. God has always throughout his word been in the business of utilizing those in spite of their youthfulness, in spite of their inexperience, to make his name known. 19th century, Yale College has a host of young men who begin to bow down, asking God to bring about revival. And one of the greatest revivals to ever occur in 19th century America are the Yale revivals where a third of the college enrollment comes to faith in Jesus. Generations of ministers are called from that revival. Birth out of 18, 19, 20-year-olds on their knees. One of the greatest revivals in, in modern history of the last hundred years in the U.S. was, was birthed out of the disillusionment in the late 60s, early 70s, where the promises of unprecedented hookup culture, unprecedented drug access, unprecedented protest culture, it comes to a place where it doesn't, it doesn't uh, uh, fulfill what is promised. Starting in the West Coast, you have high schoolers and, and college students that become to turn to Jesus, and out of that is birthed in the late 60s what is called the Jesus Movement, and the effects of that revival are still felt. And really, every aspect of the church, from music to preaching to many of you that maybe even have experienced some aspect of that. That's why we as a church for 95 years, for 95 years, understand the absolute importance of children's ministry, preschool ministry, student ministry, college ministry, 
It, it isn't that we as a church say, hey, look, we got to invest in the future of the church, that we got to think of, of students and, and children as, as sort of a, a single-A feeder system of the minor leagues, and eventually they're going to be able to graduate into the major leagues of adulthood. No, we realize that God has and God continues to, to use students, to use children, oftentimes because of their inexperience, oftentimes because of their naivete, to be able to work in powerful ways that move the church forward. So yes, we invest, not just for decades ahead, but for the spiritual vitality of our church today. Yes, Mary is an unlikely candidate because of her youthful inexperience. She's also an unlikely candidate because of her humble heritage. I mean, it's so easy to miss this. It's so easy for us to read in Luke chapter 1, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, and not to feel the weight of the humble heritage of where that angel of the Lord shows up. Uh, Nazareth is a no-name place. It, it is an out-of-the-way place. It isn't, doesn't have the religious prestige of Jerusalem. It doesn't have the cultural import of, of, of Rome. He, he is showing up to Nazareth. When I was growing up, we, we used to say, for, for those people that live five miles outside of town, ten miles outside of town, and they're from the backwoods. They're from the sticks. Somebody told me that they used to say, man, my dad grew up in the boonies. You know where, this, this is the boonies. This is the sticks. This is an out-of-the-way, nowhere place, so much so that Jesus, when he translates into his adult ministry and he's walking around, they say, yeah, like he is just a son of a carpenter, and really can anything good come out of Nazareth? The humble agrarian roots of Mary and Joseph make him an unlikely candidate. She's an unlikely candidate in, in, in every way here, but it's a great reminder that his ways are not our ways. If, if we're writing the story of the incarnation of, of, of Jesus into human history, we, we, we want to tag Jesus to this great person of renown. We want to put him in a priest's family. We want to put him in a lawyer's family. We want to put him in a scribe's family. We want to have the, the spotlight of prestige and power and in position to be able to help God along in bringing about the salvation of all who would trust him. But that's just not how God works. And this should not surprise us. But we consistently think that really God needs our help for him to spread his name and his renown. We continue to think, yes, you have a responsibility to evangelism and discipleship. I do. But we, we consistently fail to remember how God works in ways that are not our ways. We should be thankful for every famous actor, every famous writer, every famous athlete who is a follower of Jesus. So often the church, the, the church, church kind of critiques those with renown who are followers of Jesus. We, we shouldn't do that. We should support. We should pray. God, in his wisdom, oftentimes gives people huge platforms. And I'm grateful for the, the Tim Tebow's of the world who are faithful followers of Jesus with, with huge spotlights upon them. But most 
often the way that he is bringing about the salvation of men and women, uh, young children, is not through the big spotlights, but it is the faithful witness in nooks and crannies of, of families that will not be written about in history books decades down the road. I was listening to a pastor this last week, and he was talking about a very formative time in his life where he was a student, college student at the University of Miami. You remember when the University of Miami decades ago, I mean, they just had this powerhouse of a football program. So he was in a college campus ministry. They targeted that one semester. They said, we, we have a strategy to evangelize the big men on campus, all American athletes, because if they turn to Jesus for salvation, then surely a revival would break, a, uh, break out here on the University of Miami's campus. And it would be such a spotlight to be able to see all-American wide receiver, all-American quarterback come to faith in Jesus and to be able for that to springboard into our wider campus. And so they strategized, they planned, they prayed, they implemented those plans. And at the end of the semester, zero athletes had trusted Jesus as their Savior. At the end of that semester, to their knowledge, zero college students had trusted Jesus as their Savior on the campus of the University of Miami. But there was one awesome exception. In the midst of their strategizing, in the midst of their planning, to their knowledge, there was one salvation, and it was the salvation of a 55-year-old janitor in one of the dorms. And this pastor reflecting upon what God did in his sovereign will that semester was the very opposite of what they thought God needed to do to be able to bring about the salvation of many on that campus. They thought they had to get the person, quote unquote, at the top of the rung. The big man on campus. But for all practical purposes, God saved the one who was on one of the lowest rungs of the campus totem pole. And that ladder that God began to be, he, he has no concern over. And it was interesting as this pastor was reflecting upon it, it was the, the hundreds of students who came into contact with this janitor because of his proximity daily in their life as a janitor in their dorm. And, and as he was reflecting upon it, most, most people aren't getting really close to the, to the All-American wide receiver or to the All-American quarterback, but that one man and his faithful witness in, day in and day out, began to do a work. And there, there are many people that were saved in that time, and there were many people that were called to ministry in that time. Again, a reminder that God's ways are not always our ways. And Mary is an unlikely candidate because of her youthful inexperience. She's an unlikely candidate because of her humble heritage. But there's more. There's more than just the unlikely candidacy of Mary that I want us to focus on this morning. I want us to focus on the impossible pregnancy of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Notice again, in Luke chapter 1, the repetition of this fact of the impossible pregnancy. Six months, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to Galilee. The city is named Nazareth. Verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man. Well, what was the virgin's name? Well, the virgin's name, again, the end of verse 27, was Mary. The first question that Mary asked is, 
How can this be possible? She is confused about the announcement of the angel to her because she asked a logical question. This is not biologically possible what you're telling me. Now, I want you to see this is a pillar of the faith, that the Holy Spirit of God comes upon Mary and Jesus is, is formed in her womb through the providential act of God. It is a biological impossibility that is made possible through a supernatural intervention. This intervention is what we know to be the virgin birth. It is an uncontestable pillar and tenet of the Christian faith. It is not a passing reference in Matthew. It's not a passing reference in Luke. It is something that the early church and the earliest consensus of what we know to be called the Apostles' Creed when we're reflecting upon the very person of Jesus, we as the church would say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now notice the repetition, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Mary's first response to this news from the angel Gabriel is to say, huh? How? What are we talking about? A question mark. Now understand, Mary greets the angel Gabriel's news with a question mark. And they have been for centuries. People that have lined up behind Mary and said, do we really have to believe this? There have been many people, especially in the last 150 to 200 years, that have said, we as a Christian faith have got to move out of this, this primitive myths and folklore, and grow up into the age of reason, and to, to put off anything that has the tinge of miraculous. Many of you are familiar with Thomas Jefferson. In his free time, when he wasn't a Broadway musical star, he was the third president of the United States. And many of you know this about Jefferson, is that he was immensely skeptical of the miraculous and the supernatural. He wanted to hold on to Christianity, but he wanted to hold on with Christianity without the trappings of the supernatural, the miraculous. So you can see the Jeffersonian Bible. What he did with a precise razor and scissors is to go through the Bible and to excise, to cut out those things that he deemed to be holding back Christianity in what needs to be the age of reason. And so if you look at the Jeffersonian Bible, he cuts out all the miracles of the Gospels. On the cutting room floor. Any mention of the divinity of Jesus, any mention of the divinity of Jesus cuts it out. The virgin birth, cutting room floor. The resurrection of Jesus cuts it out. Now, my question to you is, is when you cut out the miracles, when you cut out the divinity of Jesus, when you cut out the virgin birth, when you cut out the resurrection of Jesus, what are you cutting out of the Bible? Hear me carefully. You are cutting out the heart of the Christian faith. Don't be mistaken about this. The miraculous the supernatural is at the heartbeat of who we are as Christians. Why? Because we need divine supernatural intervention for your plight and my plight. Why a virgin birth? You know the reason there's a virgin birth? Because we need a Savior. 
We can't fix this problem. No matter how enlightened, how educated, we have a sin problem that cannot be remedied by a man or a woman, cannot be remedied by an angelic ambassador. We need 100% God and 100% man because why? We as sinners fall short of the glory of God and we're an alienation from a holy God. Our sin separates us from God. And that's true for every one of us here in the sanctuary. That's true for every person that is watching and worshiping from home this morning. We are sinners, and our sin separates us from a holy God. The great news of Christmas is God, in his infinite love, has found a way to reconcile sinners who are human to a holy, perfect God. And you know the way that is? It is the perfect God-man. You see, in the virgin birth, we see how Jesus will be a 100% man born of Mary. But yet he is a 100% God begotten by the Father. Your problem requires not your figuring it out, but God's solution through the perfect God-man. Why a virgin birth? Because we need a Savior. Why a virgin birth? Because it is a picture of your salvation. It's a picture of my salvation. Now understand this about Mary. Mary isn't looking to be the mother of Jesus. She's not, she's not going about her day saying, I hope today the angel Gabriel comes to me. No, it is God's initiative. It is God's prerogative. It is in verse 28 and verse 30, this repetition, that the Lord is with you, the angel Gabriel says to Mary. Verse 30, Mary found favor with God. So God, in his holy providence, chooses Mary. And I think it's important for us to understand, as we look at Scripture here, this is a picture of your salvation and my salvation. The, the birth of Jesus is 100% a miracle. It's nothing to do. There's no union between Joseph and Mary here. It's not Mary being good enough to be the mother of Jesus. It is not Mary meriting anything. It is not Mary being perpetually a virgin before the birth or after the birth. It is not anything that is special, anything that is supernatural about Mary. It is ultimately the sovereign, supernatural providence of God that chooses Mary in this. The virgin birth is a gift. Your salvation is, my friends, a gift. It's not, it's not of your doing. It's by grace alone that we're saved. Not by our works. Not by our merit. Not by our striving. Not by our earning. It is a hundred percent gift that Mary receives by faith and that you, you receive by faith. You see the faith of Mary, don't you? You see her response to what is, what is unbelievable. She says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. This is her response. I am your servant. What the angel of Gabriel, what you have said from the mouth of God, let it be to me according to your word. So, Often, there are sectors of the Christian church that say so much about Mary. 
And there are times where we get nervous. We, we look to our Bible to see what, what oftentimes is said about Mary, and we say, you know, I don't, I don't see the perpetual virginity of Mary. I don't see the assumption of Mary that she was bodily taken up into heaven. I don't see that in my Bible. And there have been times, especially within the Protestant church, where there might be people that we say, hey, they're saying way too much about Mary. And so I think our temptation is to say little or nothing about Mary. But you see here in Mary, an example of faith. You see here in Mary this, this exemplar of, of one who takes God at his word and says, let it be to me according to what you have said. And my question to you is, is what gets the last word in your life? What, what part of your life are you unwilling to say, I am the servant of you. Let it be according to me, according to your word. What parts of your life are you not trusting God in? What parts of your life are you saying, you know, I'm not sure I can trust God and take him at his word? You, you know that trust is at a, at a low point in our culture. You, you know that, really, right? You, you feel that, right? You feel that skepticism and distrust that just haunts us at every moment in our cultural milieu and time right now. There, there is just so much cynicism. There's so much skepticism. And some of it's born out of, of true hesitation. Can I believe what I'm reading here? Can I believe what's being told? It's a global marketing firm that publishes every year a trust barometer. They gauge within the United States levels of, of trust and perceptions of trust across a, a variety of institutions. And surprise, surprise, that out of 28 years of publishing this trust barometer, would you be surprised to know that we're at the lowest level of trust in the United States? Lowest level of trust in the institution of the church. Lowest level of trust in the institution of corporate America. Lowest level of trust in, in the institution of Wall Street. Lowest level of trust in the institution of the government. Surprise, surprise. You feel that. You hear that. You know that. My question to you isn't, should you trust fallible human leaders or should you tr trust fallible human institutions my question to you is, is what is your soul's trust barometer to a promise-keeping God whose word to you will never fail you? Yes, there will be people in our life who say one thing and do another, but I'm here in the midst of of a culture and a time where we're hesitant to trust, to say, here is the time for you to trust a God who will never break his word. And my question to you, peering into your soul, is what part of your life are you unwilling to take him at his word? Do you trust? Do you trust him when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to me except through the Father. Do you trust that he will never leave you nor forsake you? Do you trust that his strength is made perfect in your weakness? Do you trust that he will work all things together for those that love him or are called according to his purpose? Do you trust that if you seek ye first the kingdom of God and all 
of these things will be added unto you. Mary heard the word of the Lord and she said, let it be to me according to your word. And my question to you this morning is, in a day and age where we can think there's so little that we know, there's so much that we're hesitant about, this you don't have to be unsure of. This you don't have to be hesitant about. God has spoken. Do you trust his word? Let us pray. So it is, God, this very morning that we come to you knowing that you are a promise-keeping God and we must ask, do we, do we trust that you are good? Do we trust that you are loving? Do, you, do we trust that you have spoken in your word and that what you say we believe, what we say we desire to live by? We can look around us and we feel this level of skepticism and distrust and so much of it is warranted by experience and we wonder, is there, is there anyone or anything that we can trust? And we're just reminded today that you are a promise-keeping God. And what you said through the angel of Gabriel to Mary was true, and it is true now. That you sent your son to live a life that we could not live, to die a death that we deserve to die, and to reconcile us, sinners, to you, a holy God. We trust you as Savior and Lord. We turn to you for the forgiveness of our sins. We trust that you desire to lead us and to guide us, that for every one of us that call upon the name of the Lord, the very Spirit of God dwells in us and desires to comfort us and to lead us. So we desire to trust and obey because we know there's just no other way to be happy in you, joyful in you, but to trust your word and to obey it today and the days ahead. Give us the strength to follow you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.